All right. A caveat before we start. It's always good to start qualifying before you even do anything. Um, but they're kind of serious. And the first one is this. The first one is, uh, is this. By what I have to say tonight, you're going to feel like what I'm saying is don't do good things and don't do Christian things. Be a discerning listener. That's not what I'm saying. Next week, we're actually going to talk about the Christian life and how when Jesus comes into our life, it does transform the way we live. If you don't listen carefully tonight, I'm going to try to be very clear on this, but if you're not a discerning listener and you don't listen clearly tonight, you're going to think Britain's saying, stop doing Christian stuff. I'm actually going to say something very close to that, but I'm not going to say that. Because what I'm going to be addressing is the why. The why you do Christian stuff, whatever that looks like, whatever Christian stuff entails for you. What is it that you hope to get out of it? What draws you into it? And what do you expect from everything, from evangelism, reading your Bible, praying, all the Christian-y things we all feel guilty we don't do and wish we did more? I'm addressing the issue of why. And the reason I'm addressing it is because of this, is because for the bulk of our Christian life, we've relied on guilt and shame as the motivators to drive us into those things. And actually what I want to do is remove those as the motivators and we'll feel confused because we're so used to, well, I mean, the way I kind of get into Scripture is I just feel bad about not reading it for so long and so in order to feel better, I drive to it. I want to take that motivation away and what happens is because we've relied on that motivation for so long, you'll feel confused for a minute. So listen discerningly and also come back next week. And before I read Scripture, I kind of want to I guess address the principle um, that we're talking about tonight by way of story or by way of illustration. The best job I ever had, don't be offended, was not RUF at USC. The best job I ever had, it was I was a personal shopper. Uh, it was absolutely incredible. They were completely loaded to give you an understanding of the wealth that they had. Their next door neighbor were the Bushes, and I'm not talking the piddling pennies and dimes of George Bush, I'm talking about Augustus Bush of Anheuser Bush, which is much more significant kind of wealth. Um, those were their next door neighbors, and I was a personal shopper for them. That's the kind of money I'm talking about. And uh, Mr. McAlpin, the man I shopped for, ran errands with and all that kind of stuff, I'm not a car guy, but he had the kind of Jaguar that people with that kind of money have. <laughs> Whatever Jaguar that is, car guys, you can help us out, but we're talking like six-figure car here. And uh, I would drive him around in this Jaguar, and he'd have it cleaned every week and have everything polished on the inside, and we would never turn on the radio, never use the navigation, never use the Bluetooth. It had all, every possible automotive accessory you can imagine, and obviously the Jaguar version of it, which is much better than our Toyota Camry version of it, and um, never, never even turned on the radio. Because he loved it all perfect. He didn't, want to get, he didn't want to get fingerprints on his touch screen. Literally, that's why he didn't turn on the radio. And I say that to make this point. He had all the access to incredible things. They were really his. He really drove around in them. They were really, really his. And yet he actually didn't enjoy all the access he had to incredible things. It was all his. The Jaguar was his. Everything that Jaguar provided for him was really his. He owned it. And yet he actually didn't enjoy everything that was offered and what he actually had. 
And with that in mind, I want to read from Philippians and talk about how oftentimes that's kind of how the gospel is for us. This is Paul writing church at Philippi, and he's giving them a warning. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anybody thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul, your servant. And I pray now as we consider these words, dear Lord, I pray now that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, that my personality would get out of the way, my insecurities would get out of the way, dear God, and your Holy Spirit would come down and show us the beauty of what Jesus did at the cross and what Jesus did in his life. And I pray that it would transform us and we would find rest and we would find joy. Be with us, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. To begin, I want to make this point. We're going to be talking about a theological word, but it's first a biblical word called justification. And the first thing I want to do is I want you to convince you kind of of our need of it. And so before we start talking theology, here's the first point I want to make. What we all long for, really kind of when you get down to all the decisions you make every day, some of, some of you all heard this earlier this semester, what we all long for is to be found right, to be found fit, to be found acceptable. Let's take it out of the realm of Christianity for a second. I'm just talking to you as a person. When you woke up this morning, the clothes you chose, the way you chose to engage in your classes, what you chose to eat, who you chose to interact with, was all part of your plan. And this is really right to figure out how to become the right sort of person, to be a fit per- uh, the kind of person that's just fit, that's acceptable. And we all have different images of what that looks like, but you just want to, be, we want to be found to be the right kind of person. And so you chose certain clothes because they accent certain parts of your body or because they hide certain parts of your body and so that you could be found acceptable, right? And you chose actually certain menu items because you're trying to do certain things with your diet so that you could find comfort, so that you could find acceptance, so that you could just be found to be the right kind of person. So either you rested in really high-calorie fat food, which is fine and good, or you wanted to be found acceptable by losing weight, so you invested in cheaper food with no calories in it or anything. But whatever it is, actually every choice of the food we ate today, and and my point is the mundane decisions we're making, we're actually trying to craft a type of me that's just acceptable that will be found to be right. And the problem is, is none of our plans have worked. Even religion, you came to RUF tonight, you did Young Life, you did Midtown, you did First Pres this week, so that you can become the right sort of moral person that you wish you were, and the right sort of religious person that you wish you were. And none of our plans have worked. 
And that's why tomorrow we're going to wake up again and try to become the right sort of person. Because it didn't work today. And tomorrow we're disappointed with who we are. We don't feel like we're really adequate or acceptable. Because when we really consider who we are, especially when we consider our religious identity, and you just consider who you are, what are the main things that come to mind? All of your inadequacies. When you think about yourself, you think about what you're really failing at not being. That's how we think of ourselves. What identifies us, what our identity is, what our security is, here are the things I'm not and I wish I was. And so that every day we wake up trying to become that thing, trying to become that type of person, the right sort of person. I, I was reading actually this online kind of anonymous forum where students at Stanford University could talk about their experience at Stanford, kind of learning about the school. And this one guy said, I hate Stanford because at Stanford I'm not rich enough and I'm not thin enough and I'm not smart enough and I'm not religious enough and I'm not socially successful enough. And he actually also said this, and I'm not Latino enough. We're all constantly aware of what we're not enough at. And we're trying to shore it up so we can be the right sort of person. This is our soul screaming for justification. That is our soul screaming for justification. And into this setting, into this, this great need we all feel, this inadequacy we all feel, the first half of the gospel, which is true and is rich and is sweet and is full of joy and calls for singing, broke into your life. If you're a Christian... The first half of the gospel broke into your life. You heard things like 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become our sin. He became all that's wrong with us. Right? So that Christ died for our sins, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15.3. Galatians 3.13. He redeemed us from the curse by becoming the curse for us. So into this sense of our inadequacy and all that's wrong with us, we hear the first half of the gospel, which is sweet and it is good. And it, I mean, we should meditate upon it day and night. That Jesus became our sin. And that's what Christians have experienced. And, and He became our sin and all of our inadequacy, and He received the punishment for it. And it comes by faith and nothing else. Jesus becomes our substitute, our death substitute. Jesus pays the penalty for our sin, the penalty for inaccuracy, and we receive that blessing simply by faith. And it's not our faith that saves us any more than leaning against a wall holds you up. No, leaning against the wall, the wall is what holds you up. Having faith in Jesus, it's not your faith that saves, it's Jesus that holds you up. Faith is simply leaning on Him. That's all it is. And you heard and you learned and you trusted on. You, you became aware of this. I'm a sinner, right? And sin requires justice. And you realize you can't pay the price for that. And we've all tried to atone. We've all tried to cover for our junk and it doesn't work. And we've done it by great effort, by great moral effort, by great religious effort. And even, even if you're here and you're not a Christian, this has plagued all of humanity. And the contemporary solution now, after coming up with thousands of reasons over the years, the contemporary solution now is, okay, everybody feels guilty, and so, and everybody's tried to get rid of their guilt, and they can't, so now the, the new solution of postmodernism is, well, guilt doesn't really exist, and that's an incredibly unsatisfactory answer. You heard, you, you became aware of sin, you heard about a God who doesn't demand payment from you, but actually offers to pay for you, Right? 
And it was sweet. And it was good. And that really is the gospel. Maybe you've heard, there's not a marker in here, the illustration that, you know, you incurred this debt of a million dollars, right? And it had your name at the top of it. Britain, by virtue of his sin, has incurred a debt, a penalty for a sin. And Jesus scratches off Britain's name and puts his name at the top and says, that penalty, that debt, it's mine. I'll take care of it now. And Britain, you don't have to pay. That really is the gospel. It really is good and it really is sweet and it provides rest, at least some rest for us. Jesus says, I'll let justice demand of me what Britain couldn't pay, what the law required of Britain. And that's good, but that's halfway there because this is what I suspect describes all of our experience. Insecurity begin to creep in slowly over our life. Half. Jesus cut a sweet deal with me. Have I maintained it? Have I held it up? Have I done enough? Have I been religious enough? Have I been moral enough? Because I've done some good things, like in my best moments, when I was excited about that half of the first half of the gospel. But then, like, I have these major issues that come up that are really dirty. I mean, can, can God really kind of sustain me and sustain those promises and those good things, even in line of this stuff? Because this stuff's bad. And so we have this insecurity. Does God really, how does God really feel about me at this point? I know Jesus died for my sins, but how does God really feel about me at this point? Have I recriminated myself, right? And see, there's evidence that we've all felt this way at different times because at different times, we would, if you're in Christ, you you would say you've got good theology. Jesus Christ died for my sins, but we've all entertained that possibility that maybe God is now actually still, maybe he's punishing me because of so-and-so. Right? Maybe he's actually withholding his love and care for me because of so-and-so, right? I haven't found a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Things aren't working out for me in certain other situations in life because God has seen fit to punish me, to withhold his blessing from me, right? We still don't feel fit. We still don't feel right or acceptable. And that's why... We're often driven into Christiany things. And I mean all the Christiany things that are good and you should be doing. But we're driven into them hoping that if we are successful at being religious enough that we'll find finally a little confidence and security about this whole Jesus thing, about things between me and God. And so shame and guilt and insecurity drive us to try and do better so that, we can begin, so that we can then feel confident again about things between us and God. If we can get disciplined enough in Christian disciplines, then we can, we can rid ourselves of kind of that lingering, stitch, that lingering stench of our unfitness. And we can be confident again about our acceptability before God. Maybe, I think a lot of times we often have this kind of haunting feeling we know our theology and our theology is straight. Jesus died for our sins. But we have this haunting feeling that if something happened to us tonight, I don't know if there's unfinished business between me and God because there's just a lot of stuff that makes me still feel not fit for his presence. Okay, this is Paul dealing with the church in Philippi. There are these people, Paul refers to them, the dogs, the evildoers, he calls them the mutilators of the flesh. They were called the Judaizers, and they were preaching this message. You've got to trust Jesus to get saved. You really do. He's the Messiah. He's the one. He's the servant of God. But to be really right with God and to have confidence, you've got to be doing a lot of Christian and religious stuff. 
it's this gospel of you, you really do have to trust Jesus. And, we, and, and if you're a Christian, you've really trusted in Jesus. But you have this sense, and the false teachers at Philippi are feeding that sense of, but then there's all this Christian stuff that has to come afterwards, or you can have no confidence, really. You can have a little bit, but not really very much. And into that setting, Paul says, if you think you can find confidence from the things you do, let me tell you how much confidence I should have. This is what he does. And so he lists his religious resume. If anybody thinks he has reason for being confident because of the things that they do, I've got more. I'm circumcised on the eighth day. I didn't get in the list late in the game. I started from the very beginning. I grew up in a Christian family, in a God-fearing family. They circumcised me on the eighth day. I've been doing it my whole life, is what he's saying. He's of the people of Israel and of the tribe of Benjamin, which is just kind of, in a sense, the elite or sometimes viewed as the most favored kind of group of God's people. Like, you know, I'm not in a non-denominational church way out there on the edges, you know. I'm in the heart of it all. I'm in the most favored, the center, the, the, the primary institution, God's most favored institution. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, right? As to the law, a Pharisee. Okay, Pharisees, we all think if a Pharisee came in here, we'd all recognize him because he'd be scowling and mean and just pointing out everybody's errors all the time. If a Pharisee walked in here and we saw him, we'd think, I want that guy to preach. He's a better Christian than any of us. We'd be in awe of him. When Paul says, as to the, Pharisee, as to the law, a Pharisee, he's saying, I've never looked at porn. I've done tons of evangelism. I'm a life group leader. I lead an REO small group, and I'm a young life leader. The great triumvirate, right? <laughs> I started home for the homeless, and I give a ton of money away. He does it better than any of us. He did it better than anybody there, right? As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Here's what he's saying right here. When I sent, and we have testimony of this in Acts. When I sense false doctrine... I don't blog about it and tell everybody that they shouldn't read Rob Bell's next book. I kill people who teach false doctrine. That's what he's saying. That's literally what he's saying. That's what Acts says. When I sense false doctrine, I don't tell anybody they shouldn't listen to him or shouldn't read his book. I authorize the murder of those people, and he did it. He really did. That's how serious he is about protecting what he perceives to be true doctrine. If there's anybody that should be confident for zeal and religious works and be confident because of the things they do, it should be Paul. And yet, this is how we go through life. When we lose confidence and we feel that insecurity, we think the solution is more effort. <clears throat> Paul's way better at being religious than any of us could ever be. And he says, if you think confidence is going to come, confidence in Jesus is going to come by more effort, you have no hope because I've put in way more effort than you could ever be disciplined enough to do. We keep asking our religious activity to give us security, and Paul says, I'm way more religious, and it doesn't work. But we think the answer is always, in our insecurity, to crank it up a notch. And so here's the point, and this is the second half, and this is the sweetness. We trusted Jesus to die for our sins, and that is right, and it is good, and it's cause for rejoicing but we're trusting ourselves to accumulate righteousness. 
This is what the insecurity of our soul, even though we trusted Jesus to die for our sins, this is what the insecurity of our soul is pointing to. To be fit before the presence of God, you can't simply be innocent or guiltless. You can't simply be paid up to zero in your debt. You have to be righteous. We think Jesus paid us up to zero. That he simply canceled our debt. That doesn't get you here. That's why you feel unfit, is that if that's all you believe. Because to, be, to survive before God and to receive God's favor, you can't simply be at zero. You have to be righteous. That's, why, that's what Paul says. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish. Talking about his religious things. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen to this. Not having a righteousness of my own. Which comes, that comes from the law. From doing things. So you keep trying to do righteous things. But the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that's from God. That depends on faith. Here's what justification is. And the word for justification and righteous are actually the same word. But this is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Justification is an act of God's grace, a one-time act of God's grace, whereby God pardons us of our sins, right? We're pardoned of our sin and accepts us as righteous. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. It's a legal declaration. Justification is a law court word. It's a pronouncement by God that you are pardoned for your sins because your sins have been credited to Jesus. They've gone on his account. His name stands at the top of your debt and your name doesn't stand there anymore. But you're not merely accounted innocent or paid up to zero or simply guiltless. You're actually, brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, you're accounted righteous. That's the second half. That's justification. That's the whole gospel. This is all throughout, especially Paul's letters, but all throughout Scripture. Abraham believed God, and God accounted to Abraham righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was counted in righteousness. Now, what are the grounds for that? How can we be accounted righteous? And here's a theological moment for the... Here, here, here's some theological words. There's a double imputation that takes place at our justification. We usually think about just single imputation. Here's what I mean. You know that Jesus has to become your death substitute, that your sin has to be imputed to him or credited to him or accounted to him, and he pays the price for your sin. That's one imputation. But something else happens. His perfect obedience... And his righteousness gets credited to you, gets accounted to you, gets imputed to your account. And then God judges you based on that. And that is good news. Jesus is not simply actually our death substitute. He's actually also our life substitute. He doesn't simply declare you guilty. He declares you righteous. And our problem is we think Jesus worked us up to zero, paid off our debt, and now it's up to us to accumulate righteousness, to do enough good things to finally feel confident, right? And here's the reality is when you really encounter this doctrine, you feel like that just can't be true. 
it, it can't be true that God looks at me and says, I am, that looks, God looks at Britain and says, you're righteous. You're perfectly righteous. And it can only be true if Jesus didn't simply die for our sins, but he also lived and gave us his righteousness. And that's point, Paul's point in Philippi. He doesn't go on to say, listen, if you should have confidence in your flesh, I should have more. He doesn't go on to say, you're trying to pay for your sins. You need to know that Jesus paid for them. He's addressing the second half. He's not talking about that. He's addressing the second half. You're trying now to manufacture your own righteousness, and there will be no acceptable righteousness that comes from your works. None. None of your works will give you any confidence before God. This is what theologians call an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of you that gets credited to you. It's what Isaiah calls Jesus' robe of righteousness that he sets upon your shoulders so that when God looks at you, he sees perfect obedience. When God looks at you, he sees perfect obedience. And his justification is a one-time act. He's declared you righteous. He sees you as perfect. And when you get to the second half of Jesus' work, you stop being a fear and shame-driven Christian. And you actually get to rest for the first time in your life. Because Jesus is your righteousness. Stop trying to manufacture your own righteousness. It's not working. It never has worked. You're going to think it's going to work tomorrow. And guess what? Just like the first 20 years of your life, it's not going to work in the next 24 hours either. Jesus is your righteousness. And this is what it means. When God sees you, he sees Jesus. God has pronounced his judgment on Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. And that pronouncement is now applied to you. And we feel it can't be true because I haven't done well and I haven't been a good and faithful servant. And of course I haven't. But the goodness of the gospel is that you're not adjudicated on, you're not graded on how well you have done. You're graded on how well Jesus has done. And that's good news. When God looks at you, this is what he sees if you're in Jesus. He sees somebody that has loved everybody perfectly. That's what he sees when he sees you. He sees somebody that's never followed another idol, never held a grudge. Someone who at every given moment has done all they can to alleviate pain and suffering in the world. That's what God sees when he sees you. Someone who's overflowing in patience and compassion. Someone that never has social anxiety. Someone that loves justice. Someone who never gets angry even when they're falsely accused who loves perfect holiness, who's never gossiped, who's never lusted. That's what God sees when he sees you. That's what Jesus did. He didn't just die for your sins. He gave you his righteousness. And when God sees you, that's what God sees. You are absolutely saved by works. I want to be clear on that. You are absolutely saved by works. You are absolutely judged according to works. But it's Jesus' works that you are judged according to. Your name sits at the top of his list of perfect obedience, and you receive the credit. And it can't be changed. Justification is a one-time declaration. The verdict is passed, and God doesn't go back on his word. You have no cause for insecurity. You have no cause for any lack of confidence, because confidence is never going to come by your religious stuff. But when Jesus is your righteousness... There's tons of confidence and security to be had. And here's the reality. This is what we feel like.
can you draw down this account? So I got credited all this righteousness by Jesus. Can you draw down this account? You can't. It's not possible. And in order to think so would be bad accounting in the claim that God's not just. Okay, Jesus died for my sin. He gave me his righteousness. But I feel like I'm drawing down the account. And I can draw down the account quick because I'm capable of a lot of stuff, right? You can't because Jesus has already paid the price for your sins. This new sin that you came up with, it's already been paid for. It doesn't draw down the righteousness of Christ. That's bad accounting. That's counting the same thing twice. That's claiming God's not just, that he punishes the same thing twice. It's not possible, right? The penalty of your sin has been dealt with. You can't draw down the righteousness of Christ. You can't, really, you can't be recriminated. And that's how we feel, though. And, and in some sense, it's testimony to the, the miraculous nature of that, that it's almost impossible, it's incredibly confusing, to just really to rest in that, because nothing in this world prepares us for this notion of everlasting love. Nothing prepares you for everlasting love. The most Christian marriage, the most wonderful Christian parents, the most kind and loving people, every relationship you'll enter into, there'll be an extent to it. Now, Lord willing, you won't ever get to it. Most of you won't. But everybody's commitment, even in the most wonderful marriage, there's a limit to it. You can do enough for that relationship to end. Nothing prepares us for the notion of everlasting love. And we keep thinking we can find chinks in the armor. We keep thinking that there are cracks in God's everlasting love because nothing else works that way. And so, in a sense, it's understandably hard to really rest in justification because nothing else... Our feelings betray us. I mean, John, John even recognizes this in First John. Sometimes our hearts are con- will condemn us. Even our feelings will tell us justification can't be true because look at what you've done. And so what John tells us is, remember, you have Jesus, your advocate. He will even advocate for you against your own heart when your own heart tells you it just can't be true that somebody like you can be covered by God's righteousness. Even our feelings will betray us. Relationships won't ever teach us what justification is. They'll teach us a little bit. Our feelings are going to betray us. Our experience is going to betray us. Nothing prepares us for the notion of everlasting love. But this is what you need to know. The verdict is in. You can't be reversed. There's no appeals court. In some sense, it's actually ungodly anxiousness that often guides the life of the person who's trying to be a Christian. Right? And in a sense, part of the application, get what I'm saying by this? Part of the application is this. Stop trying to be a Christian. Really. Rest in Jesus. Stop trying to be a Christian. Stop trying to become that ideal Christian person that you think you're supposed to be. And rest in Jesus. And here's what some of you are terrified I'm saying right now. If I stop trying, if I, if I don't let guilt and shame drive me into acting like a Christian person, then I won't do anything. And here's what you really fundamentally believe, and we all believe this and we struggle with it, but this is what you believe when you begin to entertain ideas like this. Fear and shame and guilt are much more powerful motivators than love. And what this is saying, what the gospel is saying, what we're going to say next week in sanctification, is that, no, 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 try love for a second. You're afraid to let go of fear and shame and guilt as motivators because you think you might not do anything. What I'm saying is, you don't understand how much God loves you. Try love as a motivator. In Isaiah 30, 15, the prophet tells God that it's in repentance and rest that you'll be saved. I think one of the sweetest ways to talk about faith is to call it rest. Brothers and sisters, rest. 
rest. The, the reason the Sabbath principle is the weird of the, of the Ten Commandments, there's all this stuff that makes sense, like don't murder, don't worship other idols, all that kind of stuff. And then there's this one that just says, oh yeah, and one day out of seven, rest. The reason we actually don't get that commandment is confusing to us is actually because we don't understand the second half of justification because we're still working so that by the works of the flesh we can gain some confidence and some security and release that anxiety. And what God is saying, stop trying to be a Christian and just rest in me. And he calls you. It's so hard to do that that he says, you know what? One-seventh of your time alive, I want you just to stop and rest in me. It releases you from the tyranny that you'd have to become this uber-Christian person, right? You just get to rest in Jesus. And next week we're going to talk about how that transforms us. Let's pray.